You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Happy New Year, everybody. I am not here. The tech-savvy at-risk youth, we are not here either. We are off this week, but we banked calls over the last few weeks so that you would not go without a New Year's Day Savage Lovecast. So without further ado, your calls. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a 19-year-old queer kid from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my name's Eric. And, um, you know, recently within the past six months, like since I've been in college, um, I've been working out a lot. And diets have started to notice me a lot more, which is great. You know, I went to New York Pride um, this past weekend, and um, I ended up meeting a prominent name in the gay porn industry, and he offered if I wanted to do a scene with him. So I said, not right now, but I would seriously consider it. So we exchanged numbers, and um, we're in contact. So I'm just wondering if you had any advice for me. Um, you know, this isn't something I'm considering out of desperation. Um, I mean, I have a place to live, I have a job, and I don't have to worry about paying for school. Um, so this would be something fun on the side. So if you have any advice for me, you know, if I do a few scenes, is this, is this going to ruin my life? Or is it just going to be fun? Define ruin your life. Uh, doing a few scenes in porn for fun is definitely not going to ruin your life. Um, doing a few scenes, getting drawn into the porn industry. Uh, I have friends in the porn industry. I have, I have a really close friend who's a porn star. Um, there are you know pitfalls. and It can be a minefield. There's a lot of substance abuse in the porn industry. My friend talks about it with me. Um, he's clean and sober, so that's been a bit of a struggle for him. You know, there's substance abuse problems. Uh, some people think they're going to dip their toe in and they wind up falling in the pool and doing more than they expected they would or more than they wanted to, they realize after being in it for a while. So you, if you're going to do this, you have to be really clear about why you're doing it, how long you want to do it for and what you want to get out of it. You're 19 years old. If you're hot enough at 19 to do porn, you'll be hot enough at 29 to do porn. You'll be hot enough at 35 to do porn. You know, my friend who is a porn star didn't get into the porn industry until he was in his 30s. There's no rush. Porn can open doors for you later in life. But at this stage of life, I really think at 19, porn can close doors for you. Uh, I don't know what you're going to college for, but you could end up not getting an internship because somebody saw your porn. You could end up not getting a job because somebody saw your porn. You could end up not getting into medical school or something else or losing out on a big scholarship or something. There are negative consequences in our sex negative culture. We all watch porn. Americans consume porn to the tunes of billions of dollars a year, and yet we see the kind of sex-negative scolding and smut-shaming that goes on where we you know, crucify people who do porn while we all consume porn. I don't want to contribute to that dynamic in the culture, 
but I do have to acknowledge that it exists, right? And that could have repercussions for you if at 19 you decide to jump out there and do a little porn. Um, I, I wish it didn't have repercussions. I wish doing a little porn was not something that was held against the young and the hot uh, by the old and the stupid or the young and the stupid. Um, and you could do this and it would in no way impact the way other people judged you when it came time to get that scholarship, get that internship, get into medical school, get that job, whatever. But it can impact decision-making around all of those things. So think about it. Think about what you want to get out of it. Think about whether you should do it now. My advice to you at this age, and I've given this advice to other friends who took my advice and were then happy that they did, is to not do it. Not do it at your age. Not do it at 19. You're in school. You don't need to do it. You were flattered to be asked. If you still feel this way at 29, once you're out of school and settled and you're on a career path and, it, and you know that doing the porn would not negatively impact your life in any way or your future in any way, then you can go and jump in and do a little porn and have a little fun. But right now, jumping in and doing a little porn and having a little fun, professional porn, not hump style porn, not porn that disappears after a weekend, could really have a negative impact on your life. So I'd encourage you to really think about it. Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old lesbian living in California. Um, I wanted to ask you about anger and, and hatred. Um, I'm in therapy, I should say, first. I'm in therapy. We're doing fantastic work there. But I wanted to hear from someone who's actually been in an abusive relationship, which I think you've mentioned that you have been. Um, it was a six-month relationship, and she was physically and emotionally abusive towards me. And I'm just angry now. You know, I, it's over. And I, you know, told her I didn't want anything more to do with her. And I'm just still so angry. And I wonder how you let go of that and how how do you forgive someone without just letting them off the hook and, and having this feeling of like, well, everything that they did was okay. I don't understand why you regard your anger right now as a problem or something you need to get past. Uh, for a lot of people who are coming out of abusive relationships, uh, you have a right to be angry. First of all, you were abused. You were in a relationship where you were physically and emotionally and mentally abused. You have every right to be furious at and with your abuser. And you know sometimes people are told that anger is a useless emotion. I, I disagree. Sometimes anger is tremendously empowering. Anger often inspires people to act uh, when it's justifiable anger. And right now it sounds like anger is – you know, inspired you to get the fuck out of this shitty relationship and away from this shitty person. And anger is probably what's giving you the drive to seek out therapy and make the kind of changes uh, in your life, including getting rid of this motherfucker, that makes you less likely to be a target for abusers in the future. You're going to be a new person. You're going to come through this stronger and wiser and less susceptible to controlling behavior, less susceptible to assholes who tear people down and abuse them. Uh, so I wouldn't, if I were you, be in any hurry to let go of this anger. Be angry and make sure your ex knows why your ex was dumped. For abusers and controllers and assholes, it takes being dumped and knowing exactly why they were dumped for them to realize that they're the one with a problem. Not all abusers are capable of this. Some abusers are just pure, unalloyed fucking psychopaths. But sometimes it takes just that kind of relentless fucking feedback from the universe for somebody who's a, a, an asshole and an abuser to start to work on their own fucking issues. 
Uh, so don't forgive this person yet. Make sure this person understands why they're your ex, why you fucking dumped them and stay angry. And then maybe in some year's time, if your abuser for whatever reason reaches out to you or you hear through the grapevine that your abuser woke the fuck up, got therapy, recognized that she was the one with issues, with problems and has really tried to address them and make amends. Maybe then you can forgive that motherfucker from afar and let go of your anger. But until then, I don't think you should let go of your anger. I think you should hold on to your anger. So long as you are consciously harnessing the energy of your anger in positive ways to improve your own life. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old female submissive from New York. Um, and I had a question. Um, I know that my mom is also a sub. Um, I found that out when I was younger by snooping through her computer, yada, yada, yada. I also know that she was in an affair, the submissive to a dominant married man, and I know that she fell in love with him. Um, my question is, I, too, fell in love with a married man online the same way she met hers, and I feel like we could find some common ground, and I understand what she was going through now, and um, I feel like maybe we could have some good conversation about it and she could help me heal and I could help her heal um, even though it's been a couple of years for her. Um, so my question is, do you think that's a bad idea or do you think that because we have some more interests and we don't have to go into detail that it would be okay for me to bring it up to her? So uh, do you mind if I ask you how old you are? I'm 22. Okay, so you're, you're 22. So your mom's roughly in her 40s and uh, I'm going to assume. Um this is a question that I really can't answer without knowing a little bit more about your mom. Like, mm-hmm. how do you think she would react to this? You know, how open is she generally about sex? What kind of conversations have you guys had about sex? Do you think she'd react negatively and freak out if she knew that you knew that she was kinky and had an affair, even knowing then that you are too and basically did the same thing? Or do you think she'd um, be cool with that? I'm not sure. I'm more worried that she'll be upset that I know that she's kinky. Um, and I'm also kind of worried about her being a little too open and maybe, um, you know, telling me things that I don't want to know that she's done or maybe prying into what I do a little bit too much. You know what I mean? Yeah, you really um, are opening a door when you have this conversation. It's going to be difficult if... You know, you violate this boundary, which you would be doing then to say to your mother, but you can't violate any of these boundaries um, or you you want to establish new boundaries after you cross that boundary, which is you kind of – your parents don't like to – parents don't like to think about their kids having sex and kids don't like to think about their parents having sex and usually there's this great wall of – you know, acknowledged denial. Like I'm going to pretend that you're not sexual. You pretend that I'm not sexual. And we'll yeah. get a, and we won't go into the details. You know, my my mom knew I was gay. She didn't know what I did in bed and didn't yeah. want to know. Yeah, exactly. She could infer what happened, mm-hmm. but she didn't want yeah. a, a video. Yeah, she didn't want to know all the gory details. Right, and I'm, I assume your mom doesn't either. Is your mom reeling from the closet or shame? Do you see a lot of negative things in her life? You know, bottling up maybe this affair all these years. Or is she fine? I, I think that she has a lot of a, still a lot of pain from it. Um, I don't know if I mentioned in my call that he passed away. Um, uh-huh. 
and I know she had words with his wife after his passing. Um, and I feel like she kind of feels like nobody understands, you know? Um, and I don't know. I feel like I want to help her and tell her that I do understand. And, you know, I know how hard, how hard it must be. And, you know, I don't understand completely, but I feel like I have more of an insight than I did, you know, a few years back when I, I said some hurtful things to her. Um, ah, well, wow, I, that's a new one. That's new info. Yeah. You said yeah. hurtful things to her years ago about the affair. Did the affair go public? Um, well, it wasn't public, but it was public to me. And, um, because I had found some stuff on the computer and I confronted her about it and, um, things got pretty ugly. Um, Oh, so you know, I, I, it's not so much that you want to open up with your mother about your shared interest in kink and your shared experience. It sounds like you need to apologize to your mother. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, that too. Did yeah. you out her about this affair to your father? No. No, absolutely not. Did no, co- she's not with my father. Was, was she not with your father then when there was No, yeah. Arguments? No, they haven't been together since I was a baby. Oh, okay. But you no, shamed um, your mother for being involved with a married man. Yeah, I did. And, and I, I shamed her a little bit about being into things, like, not, like, I just, you know, said she was a freak and, you know, stuff like that. And thing, I was young and I didn't really understand and I didn't really grasp the concept of, you know, these weird pictures that I was seeing on her computer and, you know, weird conversations that I had, like, when I looked over her shoulder while she was on the computer, you know what I mean? This is a horse of a different color. This isn't, mm-hmm. oh, mom's kinky, I'm kinky, I know it, she doesn't know it, should we bond over our shared sexual tastes. This mm-hmm. is, I ran my mother through razor blades and glass when I was a kid and found out that she was having an affair with a married man and she was kinky. And I said really hurtful things that probably left lasting wounds. Should I talk to my mother about that? Mm-hmm. Particularly yeah. now that I realize I'm kinky now that I've basically run the same script in my life. I think you should then talk to your mother about that. You can say, you know, mom, I don't ever want to, like, I don't want to have the kind of relationship where, you know, we share all the details of our sex lives. I still want to have like a good parent child boundary. But yeah. <laughs> I feel terrible about what I did. That terribleness has grown since, you know, I realized that I'm kinky too. Maybe some of the anti kink shit I said to you then was, you know, about self loathing being expressed or confusion. Mm-hmm. And I got involved with a married man. I can see how that can happen to anybody. And I apologize for what I did, what I said, what I put you through. You should say that. And that's not an open-ended conversation. That's an apology preferred, hopefully an apology accepted. And then that conversation's over. It's not, hey, mom, let's have an open-ended, ongoing conversation for the rest of our lives about our kinks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're right. So I would need to apologize. You do need to apologize. You need to go to her. You You need to fess up. And hopefully mm-hmm. she won't retaliate. Hopefully she's the grown-up still and a mom and a good one still. It sounds like, like you're an ethical, sensible person. Yeah. <laughs> and so is she. So she won't lash out at you the way you lashed out at her because you were a child when you lashed out and she is a grown-up. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I, ho- I mean, I hope not. I hope she doesn't. But you, th- th- there's unfinished business here. Your mother deserves an apology. You owe her an apology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not an abject one. You were a child. So it's not mm-hmm. like you killed her dog or you were the world's worst person. You were a child and I'm sure if she's a sensible adult, she gets that and she's already told herself mm-hmm. that. But to hear from you now as an adult that you feel bad about what you put her through at that moment, at that time in her life, I think she would appreciate that phone call. Yeah. 
or that visit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to apologize. Definitely. Okay. Good luck. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Sometimes I read people's books and I really like them. And then I start looking out for calls where I might be able to bring them in, call their publicist and say, hey, I do this podcast. There's a lot of listeners. And I got this question and it would be perfect for your author. Unfortunately, there's not always a good question in the hopper that you know naturally plugs into an author's book. So today I'm going to make an exception and I'm just not going to go hunting for questions for the excuse to talk to the author of a new book. I'm just going to bring him in and we're going to talk to him for a minute. Question or no question. Jacob Tomsky uh, has worked in the hotel industry for most of his adult life and he has written a terrific new book called Heads in Beds, a reckless memoir of hotels, hustles and so-called hospitality. And he joins us now by phone. Hey, Jacob, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you so much uh, for having me here. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, just finished the book, and I loved it. And, and, and here's the way we can work you into the show. I understand that people have sex in hotels. Yeah, I think it's like the, the cauldron of sex. It's like it's, it's always happening in there. And, and sometimes not just guests. No, no, no. You got an employee on employee action. You got guests on employee action. I think uh, a lot of bellmen uh, really enjoy that position for that reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much you know it's, it's a hot bed in there. You got some people are sleeping, uh, but most people are not. Well, what do you do if you're trying to sleep and the person in the next room is bagging a bellman? I would I'd say enjoy it. Uh, I don't. I don't <laughs> um, actually, I, I think uh, I, I got some kind of a weird sexual fetish for listening to people have sex after working in a hotel. I have no idea why, but just wandering down the hallways uh, and listening for it for some reason that kind of uh, that kind of sparked something in me. But um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose you could complain if you're you know if you're a jerk and call out and get security <laughs> to to break up the sex if that's the kind of person you want to be. So what do people you, you talk about sex a lot in the book? Um, but what do people? What's your advice for any listeners who are at a hotel and they want to have sex with a hotel employee? They see. The desk clerk, they see the bellman that they really want to bag. How do you make that happen? Uh, you know, good old-fashioned innuendo. Uh, um, you know, the hints and uh, just uh, invitations and offers. I mean, I've received a few myself. Uh, I, I suppose I would maybe go for maybe the bellman because it's it's very normal for them to uh, go into your room. Uh, so nothing looks weird about a... Uh, you know, a gentleman in a, in a vest following you into your room. That was pretty normal. Uh, I, whereas a front desk agent, I spent a lot of time rocking the desk. Uh, it looks a little funny for me to go up there. But, uh, yeah, just a good old-fashioned uh, proposition, I think. But, that's, but you know, how, do you, how do you distinguish that normal service industry, you must be nice to the guest, smile from flirting or, or genuine interest? A lot of people you know, misread that, whether you're talking about baristas or bartenders or waiters or hotel clerks. You may be throwing the innuendo around and they're smiling and going, because <laughs> they have to. <laughs> And you don't want to misread that, right? How do you tell the actual genuinely interested bellman or receptionist from or front desk clerk from the uh, you know doesn't want to fuck you bellman or front desk? You know, I think I, I thought a lot of times you know people trying to get upgrades and women were flirting with me, and I was like, you know, I think you're just pretty much trying to get an upgrade. But I, I mean, taking a piece of hotel stationery, uh, maybe writing like you know I want to fuck you, you know, and then parentheses seriously. You know that that's pretty much throw out all the innuendo and just just be know, that either uh, either security's there or the bellman will be there. One <laughs> of the two. You should, you can be that blunt and that direct, and you're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> no, I mean it's not going to. You know, I mean we get that all the time. Like uh, you know, people are always hinting. Like I said, uh, a hotel is a is a sexual place. Um, so you know, these jokes are always thrown around, and you know, 
I mean, it just depends on how far you want to go. Same thing at Starbucks. I'm not really sure how you'd uh, get a barista in the bag, but uh, at least in hotels we have rooms, so you got a little better shot, less, less distance to travel. In your book, Heads and Beds, you give away all the secrets of the industry, including how to get, you know, to eat anything you want in the minibar without paying for it, how to get movie charges taken off, how to get upgrades, how to really, how to work the system. I've been traveling for, I travel all the time. I, I think I spent a hundred nights in hotels last year. There's stuff in here that I didn't know, uh, scams, and I'm, I think I'm a pretty sophisticated traveler. I'm also a big uh, maid tipper. I'm always on my friends who don't tip maids to at least, at least five bucks for the maid. So I, I think I get a gold star there. But are, are, you, are, you, are you still working in hotels after giving away all these secrets, after costing every hotel in America so much money? Are you a persona non grata? You're on a book tour now. Are you sleeping on sidewalks? What are you doing? Well, you know, I think I wrote the book for, um, you know, for employees for clocking in. It's a service industry book. Uh, I mean, I spent a brief time in management, but, um, and, you know, part of the, the point of the book, I pretty much spend a, a good amount of it telling people to tip everyone. So I think when I walk into a lobby, uh, most of the people in that lobby will like me as far as, uh, you know, upper management and owners and things like that. I mean, I decided when I, when I set out to write this, uh, this memoir, I was like, you know what, I just want to expose every single angle. And some of it's dirty, uh, some of it's cute, uh, some of it's ridiculous. But, um, yeah, that was part of it, the whole uh, grafting and, and stealing from the mini bars and, and just shaving stuff off your bill and how to complain. I mean, it's all part of it. And, you know, the, the mini bar has always been a problem. It's not as if, um, you know, back when it was called the honor bar. So I think it's kind of back to being the honor bar. It's back to, you know, whether or not you want to pay for that or not is up to you. And I think a lot of people are you know, generally morally, uh, you know, strong and they're but you're not, not necessarily going to feel. You, you haven't wound up on some like uh, hotel version of the no fly list. You're not on a no sleep list. You can actually get a hotel room despite all the dirt you, you shoveled out in your book. I would think so. I'm actually not allowed in one of the hotels that I worked in, uh, but that's completely unrelated to this book. I'm, just, uh, <laughs> I'm on the, I'm on the security wall there. Uh, uh, but uh, they didn't even know that I was writing this book, so it was all—it was all very uh, clandestine and secretive. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm much happier now that it's out because you know, that was—that was a long time to wait. But um, and, yeah, who knows? Uh, I mean, I, I hopefully, hopefully the workers like it. And as far as management, uh, you know what I mean. Uh, they can suck it. I don't know. <laughs> and before we let you go quickly, because uh, this is something else I obsess about, your book really is a parable about the importance of a unionized workforce, the importance of union representation. You can read the whole book, and what you come away with at the end is, thank God for unions. Can you can you plug your union before we let you go? Yeah, that's uh, Local 6, <laughs> New York uh, Hotel Motel Trade Workers Union, AFL-CIO. They my, saved, my people. They saved your ass and took on corrupt yeah. management and... and uh, Showed them the door. It's a terrific read. Everybody should pick up Heads and Beds by Jacob Tomsky. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Savage. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is... Heads in Beds, a reckless memoir of hotels, hustles, and so-called hospitality by this week's guest, Jacob Tomsky. Uh, Jacob reads the book himself. It is an excellent, excellent read. It is hilariously funny. Uh, and if you stay in hotels, uh, you want to hear what goes on behind the scenes. It is fascinating. It's a terrific book. Can't recommend it strongly enough. 
And for that free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. That's audiblepodcast.com slash savage. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old gay man living in our nation's capital. My relationship with the past two years ended in August, primarily due to my lack of chest hair. As much as I've tried to find another reason for why this otherwise perfect relationship ended, after the past three months of trying to sort through our issues, the fact that I'm not hairy is the only problem. We were best friends in addition to boyfriends. I've never met anyone in my life that I had so much in common with whose presence I truly enjoyed beyond anything else. 99% of the time we spent together was amazing, but it seems that the 1% was the death of us. Our sex life was good, but rarely great. It wasn't for my lack of trying, but he simply created a set menu of options of what we as a couple could do in bed together and would never take me seriously whenever I intended to do something off-menu. In July, after looking out the window while fucking me, after I'd been overseas for two weeks and otherwise ignoring me upon my return, my ex told me that he had no attraction to me and never had because I wasn't hairy. Here's where it gets even more complicated. I agreed to an open relationship. It made sense. He can get the hair he wants at home, so by all means, get it elsewhere. While I was overseas, he slept with a partnered little furry guy. After doing this, he suddenly finds me unattractive. Why? because I'm not new and fun like this other person, and he felt he could do more in bed with someone furry than he wanted to do with me. Each week in July, he would break down emotionally and come working on our relationship, telling me that he loved me. After this, he would then pull away completely, become cold again, and force the same conversation again and again. He was too much of a pussy to break up with me, so he backed me into a corner and forced me to do this. One important note, is that he's 10 years older than me, and his longest relationship before me was only two months. Despite all of this, I love the guy more than I can express. 99% of our life was amazing. I haven't been able to feel the breakup because it wasn't what I wanted. It's just what I was forced to do. The love was mutual and it was there. Then with the flip of a switch in July, it suddenly wasn't. I don't know how to cope with this loss, I feel like I'm not, I've not only lost the love of my life, but that I've lost my best friend. Despite continued discussions with him, often with him deciding that he wants to work on things, after a few days, he comes up with another problem. The final problem that has led to us not talking, once again, I'm not there enough for him. How do I move on? I'm so fucking hung up on this guy. I don't want to lose my best friend and boyfriend. I've never felt so miserable so broken and so out of control in my life. I can fault myself for the things I can control, but not having chest there, really? It takes two years to find this out. This is the one thing that I can't and couldn't fix. I don't want to discount your pain, but your ex sounds like a fucking nut. And, you know, when I meet people who are hung up on fucking nuts, the obvious conclusion to which to leap is that someone who's hung up on a fucking nut must be fucking nuts. But you sound so rational and thoughtful that I don't want to think you're fucking nuts. Um, but I will if you don't get the fuck over this guy and quick. Um, he's a mess. Uh, you know, maybe it's that you're not hairy enough. Maybe he's one of those people who, you know, it's one thing. You know, a size queen who's a dedicated size queen could never be with somebody who is average, uh, with an average endowment, because it's just that's so crucial to their idea of who their ideal partner would be, or you know, 
that that sex hinges on that so uh, thoroughly that they're just not sexually compatible with someone who isn't well hung. Maybe chest hair is that for him. Maybe he's a chest hair size queen. Uh, in which case, this will never work out, and that can seem really arbitrary. You know, there are people out there, uh, size queens out there, who dated people who didn't have big dicks because everything else was there. You know, it was a relationship, a friendship, everything else was great. They were great together, except for this. But that thing that's missing over time actually becomes bigger and bigger, ironically, considering the example, and more and more of a deal breaker until ultimately. The question is called and the relationship ends. And that can seem arbitrary and unfair to the small-dicked or average-dicked boyfriend who fell in love with the size queen or to the smooth guy who fell in love with the guy who's only somehow capable of loving an otter. And what you do at those moments is you remind yourself that there are 3.5 billion other men on the face of the earth and he is not the one. There are many ones. There are a lot of 0.64s and 0.68s and if you're lucky, a 0.76 or 0.78 and you find one of those 0.72s and you round that motherfucker up to one. You're doing some rounding with this motherfucker. It sounds like you guys didn't have much of a sexual connection. It sounds like you were kind of sexually incompatible and yet you rounded that motherfucker up to the one. Not because he was the one because there is no the one but because you wanted to be in love. And he was close enough and so you did the work of making him the one. You can take that capacity that you have to make someone the one to do the work of rounding that motherfucker up and find somebody who isn't fucking nuts and round that motherfucker up. He's out there. Have your wallow. You're 28 years old. Your first probably long-term relationship. Getting your heart broken. You're doing shit right now that – Straight kids were doing when they were in college, right? Wallow, 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 eat ice cream, be pathetic and then get out there and meet some other guys, some saner guys, someone that you are sexually compatible with, someone who likes smooth guys, someone who isn't a fucking nut like your ex. And if you can't get over this nut, then you're nuts too. 3.5 billion men. On the planet, hundreds of millions of them are gay. Get the fuck out of the house and go meet some of them. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old bisexual female. I am in a loving, companionate relationship. We've been together for over four years now. I learned about six months in that he's just not interested in sex. And though he offered to keep having sex for my benefit, I actually found that kind of awkward. But I've surprised myself and found that masturbation actually takes care of my needs pretty much entirely. And this incredible, intimate, companionate relationship we've developed is working and it feels healthy even though it's sexless. Uh, my problem is that this is a secret he doesn't want anyone to know about. In fact, he has a really, really hard time even talking about it, even to me. I grew up as uh, a active bisexual in a very conservative house, and I went through some really hellish moments in high school that came from bigotry, both from my peers as well as the school administration. I had nobody to turn to except my physically abusive girlfriend. It, it was pretty fucked up. Uh, everything improved in college for me and not having to keep a secret of who I was was, I mean, so liberating. And now it sort of feels like I'm in a different sort of closet, the I'm dating an asexual closet. 
friends of mine like to talk about sex and I always have to lie to them about our sex life because I don't want to out him. I can't even take full responsibility and say, I don't want to have sex without outing that we are not having sex. When I try to bring it up with him, he often breaks into tears. He's definitely not comfortable with who he is. I don't know what to do. I remember how horrible it was being stuck in the closet, but I'm sure that this is somehow different. And if we're going to stay together forever, I'm eventually going to want to talk to him about opening up our relationship. I'm cool with no sex for a while, for several more years, in fact. But at some point in my life, I'm probably going to want to have sex again. But any mention of our sex life, and he gets so incredibly broken apart and heartbroken and guilty and God... So do you have any advice for facilitating this conversation? I really feel like I have no guidance or template to go on, and I can't even talk to my friends about it. I'm from the abrupt and cruel um, school of relationship talking about shit. How articulate was that? I uh, didn't get much sleep last night. You know, I think you say to him, a nice sexual boyfriend, I can and will do, obviously, I I'm doing you in the boyfriend sense, not in the sex sense of doing uh, a mess boyfriend. I'm not willing to do that. I can't sign up for that for the rest of my life. I also have to have a right to talk about my life with my friends and rely on their support. And you need to shift how you regard his you know, patheticness about this, that he's so inconsolable and miserable is a kind of controlling behavior. He's controlling you. He's isolating you even uh, from the love and support of your friends and telling you what you can talk to them about, what you can't talk to them about. That's not okay. You need to be able to turn to the people in your life and be able to discuss what's going on in your life and get their input uh, and support. So you say to him, I'm here for the long haul. I'm with you. I want to be with you. But if you want me to be with you long term, you need to get healthier about this. I'm willing to give you another year of this charade, this bullshit where I have to pretend that we're having sex and we don't talk about this and I won't tell anybody else that, that, that you're basically asexual uh, and that our relationship is loving and companionate as is, isn't grounded in sex and that's OK. You got a year of that and in that year, you need to get to a place where you are – if you are asexual, asexually identified and out and proud about it and not driven by shame and fear and whatever else is – Throwing a wrench into your brain about this. Get him to asexuality.org, the Asexual Visibility and Education Network where he can meet other folks who've been through what he's going through now if he's actually in the coming out as asexual stage of his sexual development um, and maybe find the, res the resources and tools and the words that he needs to get comfortable with who he is and to get comfortable with your comfort with who he is and to get comfortable with others knowing who he is and with the people that you're intimate with, your friends and your, your close relatives knowing you know, the, the rough parameters of your life sexually. And if he can't do that, you need to end this relationship. If he can't commit to doing that now, to getting healthy about it, you need to end this relationship because you – know, not to punish him for being asexual or a mess but because you can't live like this all the rest of your life, right? You can't live without the love and support of your friends, without being able to talk to people, without sex for the rest of your life. You can't live like this. So if he tells you that he can't and won't ever get healthy about this, he can't even have a conversation about it, you have to end this relationship. Not to punish him but because it's not what you need. It's not what's going to make you happy.
Hi, Dan. 30-year-old straight female here, and I've got one for you. I've been seriously dating this kind of damaged but very sweet guy for two months, and up until now, I've unconditionally accepted his baggage without any judgment and been very GGG. That was until uh, the other night when we're opening up to each other and the conversation turned to farts. And he straight face tells me that I can never fart in front of him, ever. It, it turned into this huge argument and he pretty much expects me to always be able to control and excuse myself as if. Am I wrong to want to dump the motherfucker because, God forbid, I may accidentally rip ass in front of him. This is the first thing resembling anything near the relationship I've had in many years, and it seems so silly for this to be a deal-breaker. So I guess my question is, what is the dating etiquette towards farts these days? So I'm asking you and the tech-savvy at-risk youths, is this fart apocalypse a DTMFA situation, or should I lighten up and compromise? Obviously, you had to dump this motherfucker, and you did the right thing. But I hope you did it by going out for quesadillas and eating a lot of black beans uh, and doing tequila shots and having a lot of guacamole and then maybe a peanut butter sandwich when you got back to his place and then just letting him rip and call his bluff just and see what he says then. Any guy who has a no-fart policy that he's trying to impose on his wife or girlfriend uh, needs to get a blow-up doll and a dog because that's all the companionship that he deserves. And P.S. Dogs Fart. Hi, Dan. I'm calling you from abroad right now. And I'm currently in Taiwan. And I have a question for you that I think you've probably never gotten before. But who knows? Um, I, when I see money, when I see cash that's about to be given to me, I get an erection. I get a boner when I see the cash. Um, it doesn't happen all the time, and it doesn't happen when I see like small amounts of money, but when I see larger amounts of money about to be given to me, um, it gives me an erection. And I've never had this with anything else before. It's not a fetish either. It's not like something that I'd want to incorporate into my sex life. Like if you brought um, money into the bed while having sex or something, I would, that wouldn't turn me on. Like that would probably turn me off in fact. So it's not like, yeah, it's not sexual at all. So I'm really confused as to why this is happening. It's very, very weird. I mean, the only thing that I can guess is that like, this is the first time in my life that I'm really making money on my own Maybe because it's a foreign currency. I mean, it's never happened with like U.S. money before. I don't know. Some men have these spontaneous erectile reactions to seemingly random stimuli. There are people who I, I've met, I've spoken to, who get in the back of a cab, always get an erection. In a certain social kind of situation that's not erotic in any way, always have this erection response and you have stumbled over that. You have found the one thing that triggers a seemingly random Boner response. It's not a lot you can do about it except enjoy it and don't let anyone hand you any foreign currency when you're wearing a Speedo. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number at the podcast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, 
give us a buzz. There's a comment thread attached to each and every show at thestranger.com slash lovecast where many of the callers jump in uh, and participate in the conversation after the show. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Happy New Year and thanks for downloading. <laughs>